out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week, it's all the way from Australia because I spoke to a member of the Triffids. I know I'm so excited because it's taken me three years to find a member to talk to, which is great. And this is with Robert McCoom. Um, so we talked about life in an indie band, as I sometimes say, life, love, poetry, all that other kind of groovy stuff, the creative process and their incredible years during the 80s, releasing such albums as Born Sandy Devotional, as well as our other favourite of that time. Yes, indeed, it was the Black Swan. But anyway, um, let's just cut to the chase. This is me. Um, yeah, after several minutes of casual chat, as you do, um, yes, Robert was asking me a little bit about my early gig in time, because based in Norwich, this is where I am, he was wondering if uh, I went to one of the gigs, his early gig in 1984 at a place called Santana's, which is no longer in Norwich. Anyway, um, so you get some context of what this next little bit is going to be all about. Um, this is Robert's question to me. And after that, it's just kind of solid gold. You'll love it. You may have been at the Santana's Club in Norwich in 1984. Oh, bloody hell. No. That's, I look back over our gigography to, to see that's the last, the only time we played in Norwich, I think. Right. Played. Santana's. Santana's, yeah. Right. Is it still going? No, no. The, the, no only thing that is probably, the only thing that's slightly still going, well, slightly, they're still, I mean, obviously the university, the uh, UEA and then the Arts Centre, which is on St Benedict Street, is still kind of going. But who were you? Um, were you the headline or supporting someone on that gig? I think uh, probably the headline for what it's worth. It's as I remember, it would have been a smallish place. Yes, I mean it was a it was very tiny actually. God, I, so so yeah, that's uh, I didn't know you played Norwich then. I probably I probably came to the band a bit later. As you right. as I, as I'll can probably confess that moment where, I mean, it always comes back a bit to John Peel. But I mean, it's always curious. I mean, what what was your kind of musical awakening? You know, how did you suddenly find yourself sort of become fascinated with music? Because because for me, you know, I'm sort of in my mid fifties, so it's kind of the early seventies. I mean, what was your kind of path? Um, well, our, our dad Harold, Dave, and I. At, uh, two or four boys growing up in a house where um, our dad in particular was uh, pretty obsessed with lots of things, but music was one of the things, those, and musicals and light opera and serious classical music as well. So we often had a lot of music around as kids, and um, but we had a record player, uh, so... You know, I remember me and Alzie and Dave miming to the Beatles and that sort of thing. So, you know, we had a lot of exposure to music, but as far as playing music ourselves, it wasn't. Was Dave and Alzie and Phil Kakoulis started the band The Triffids when they were in high school and I was at university also experimenting 
that whether I could play in a band or not with a with another band of my contemporaries. So um, it was a, a sort of like yeah, we were talking about being independent, a do-it-yourself attitude in in a place like Perth, where in, uh, we certainly didn't have. Uh, you, if you're going to have a go, you you um, there was nothing to stop you. I guess that there was. Um, space or room, but we we didn't have sort of any particular uh, influence either. I guess it was just a general. Uh, well, for, for Dave, he he had clear uh, influences from uh, the music world. I, I was, well, I guess um, for, you know I'm four years older than Dave, so when he's 16 years old and I'm 20, that seems like quite a lot. And it wasn't until Phil Kakoulis left the band in, I think, 1979, just when they were leaving high school, that I offered my services to replace him, that did the age gap sort of narrow a bit. So our, our musical influences, as far as uh, motivating to, to play it ourselves, differ a bit. But I guess my uh, biggest influence was Dave because I could see that you know the Triffids I would how great the potential was there and how great they were at the time you know in 1977 or 78 because you'd had the obviously the Saints and then you had Radio Birdman and uh, yeah a few of those see, we, um, we didn't hear them so much as hearing you know television and um the Ramones or Talking Heads or Pear Ubu or um the residents or something like that were influencing Dave or, or Kraftwerk. Yes. Um they were the sort of bands that were influencing well the, the, before the Triffids there was Dalsey, which was just Dave and Alsey who who Dave uh, records quite well in in sort of a documentary style in in a notebook. He as a sort of sixty oh, sorry he's still there as a sixteen year old he he wrote wrote the history of the Triffids. So yes, um, it was quite it was just, uh, partly available on uh, the website on the Triffids website that Graham set up. There's a lot of that early notebook material that's interesting. So, yeah, music, uh, it came in all shapes and, and sizes back in those days and um, it was certainly Dave's writing that drove uh, drove the Triffids. Yes. And did you, I mean, because in this country, in the sort of the late 70s and then the early 80s, obviously we had the punk movement and, you know, Thatcher came in in 79 and then there was like, we had the Falkland crisis and then there was the miners' strike and there was a lot of yeah. political unrest. And a lot of people, especially young people, especially if they were left of centre or sort of even further left than centre, you know, becoming sort of unemployed or going unemployed and claiming job seekers allowance or the enterprise land scheme, you know, it was almost like a, a thing that people did. They didn't, it wasn't a status symbol in the sense of the you're a failure. It was a bit like, you know, you were just doing this, you know, having a few years kind of, I suppose a lot of people were bumming about, but there was a lot of people who also formed bands at that time as well. And there was a lot of kind of 
and I suppose both resentment and anger and sort of a feeling that you know there was no future for people so how did how was it for you in Australia at that sort of period? Yeah well there, there was something in common in that yeah I guess unemployment was high and um, there weren't really that many options but we can't uh, complain of the same sort of hardships as you can living in the UK at the same time. Um, so I guess I was pr politically pretty naive back then. I, I just uh, saw the brilliance of Dave's songs and realised that um, I could help by being part of the group and it uh, yeah, went went from there sort of even comparing the atmosphere in the UK to say Perth in the mid 80s um, well they're very different yeah <laughs> so um, it wasn't it, there wasn't some sort of um, working class rebellious rebelliousness in that in our background um, but but having said that, Dave Dave's writing sort of encompassed a lot of perspectives, so it sort of wasn't wasn't relevant. We we're quite um, idealistic, I guess, in our approach, and that's how I felt. Yes, because I've sort of, I mean, in a very sort of naive way, ish, um, you know, you know, you had that punk period. I mean, obviously there was things like you know heavy metal was happening, prog rock, but then you had that punk period, then that post-punk period with bands like Gang of Four and Magazine and uh, Pill, and then the kind of indie pop world started to appear at that early period, you know, the early 80s, and the first few bands like, you know, Teardrop Explodes and um, Echo and the Bunny Men, but it was kind of 83 when things really felt like something else had happened, and that was the year when the Smiths appeared in our lives. The Smiths. So from yeah. kind of 83 to 87, you know, that five year period, I kind of feel looking back, that was a really amazing kind of things just really did happen. And most things don't last for that long. I mean, five years is pretty good. I mean, the 60s didn't, you know, the glory period didn't last that long, really. So, so again, you know, there was a very good period. And also we had in this country, and probably you did as well, you had gatekeepers, you know, we had the John Peel show, we had the NME, Melody Makers, Sands, okay. Record Mirror. So, and then, as you said, you came to Norwich and played in Santana's in 84. You know, each town had a little indie uh, club and, you know, bit, yeah, bit and we And we were let in by the gatekeeper, John Peel in 1984 in the UK. Yes. Which we got on his show and he came down to the, the res in Romford to see us, and uh, we, in a, see, coming spending three years playing in Perth before we even left Perth to go to Sydney, and then spending two and a half years playing in Sydney and Melbourne and Perth, um, we 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 weren't given the same encouragement by the gatekeepers in Australia. Although to be fair, that Mushroom did sign us, but then drop us, and uh, we did do a record. Uh, with uh, a you know label part of Mushroom in Melbourne in '82, but it wasn't. Yeah, we got a lot more support in the UK and in Europe. Uh, yes, places like Belgium and Holland and the 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 north. You know, Sweden, Finland. 
these places immediately um, seem to way. connect with the music. But also, I guess we'd got to a stage by that of being quite confident in uh, in what we were doing. Whereas, I guess in in the early years, there was some was was less confidence in it. But I I was always confident that Dave's songs would you know would win across the even the most uh, uh, sceptical pop fan. Yes, because a lot of people, and I've done quite a lot of interviews with Australian bands, and one, no, two from New Zealand. Um, you know, there is this kind of great moment where people are going, oh, actually, we're going to have to relocate to um, London and, and start to work there, because actually it's kind of, we've, we've kind of exhausted and exhausted the sort of Australian scene. And I remember in the 60s, you know, Jermaine Greer, um, Robert Hughes and uh, Barry Humphreys, they all sort of came over to London, didn't they? And, and actually probably stayed. So, I mean, did you, as a band, you know, when you got together and, and you know, the, the sort of nucleus of, of what the Triffids was there in about 83, 82, 83, did you also feel that there was time to sort of relocate? Because let's face it, the UK loved the Triffids. Well, uh, you know, as I say, we left Perth in 81 after spending a few years sort of saving our money there, went to Sydney, um, and probably weren't settled enough in the lineup and, and what we were doing until a couple of years later going to the UK. But it wasn't, the UK was just what we were thinking of going to New York. It wasn't necessarily the UK, it was just get out of Australia. Um, and it was just that we knew somebody in London, well, um, where at least Marty, our bass player, could stay. And once you get sort of foothold of accommodation somewhere, <laughs> and that made, made it easier. Uh, but, yeah, we were always uh, felt just as connected with the sort of American music scene, if you, you know, like to call it that, with American music than with... Because I think, I, think it was, I think it was the members, I mean, a lot of bands came straight to London. Then I think the, the Die Pretty, I think they yeah. relocated to America for a while. I don't think they ever stayed, but I might be getting yeah. confused with different bands. Uh, yeah, lots of Australian bands have gone to America looking for uh, their breaks there. Um, Paul Kelly, a very well-known uh, Australian um singer songwriter who uh dave actually did a couple of songs with him in the 90s but uh and we bumped into paul kelly and his band they were called at the time the messengers or something in new york in 1988 where they were yeah they'd virtually relocated to the to the us for a year or so but didn't crack that market as they as they were looking to, yeah. Um, we we didn't have really that approach. We were, um, I mean, of course, we we needed to um, make some money to be able to survive. But it was it was uh, yeah, just a, a, a sort of a quest, if you like, to to see how far we could take it. Yes, because um, because I've sort of realised during this show that most bands have a five-year narrative, and um, 
Mm. I don't know if it's still the case, but you know, in those days, you know, like spend 12 months as a band, 18, you know, make a sound and make something a little bit more kind of unusual than everybody else. And then in those days, you know, like I said, John Peel gives it a spin, which is a big thing. Then, you know, you get John Peel session again, that's kind of good. Then you get that first album. So things are working. And then you get that kind of network of venues around the country. And then, you know, you have Europe as well, possibly. I mean, so again, it, it's kind of, um, you know, it, it seems to be one of those, those, those kind of uh, narratives, I suppose, a lot of bands have of sort of progressing to the next level, uh, you know, because if you're, if you're yeah. doing anything in life, you've got to feel like you're progressing a bit, haven't you? Yeah, and so the thing, and things keep changing and in the music industry, particularly like, like anything, and you need to keep on changing. Oh, sorry, dropped the phone again, which we did keep on changing, and uh, that was part of why we stopped uh, playing or recording is Dave decided he needed to do something different. So uh, we never, I think, uh, felt certainly in Australia a, a strong connection to the music industry. Yes. Uh, did you? It was, um... uh, we felt like we we're operating in a parallel universe in a way, just uh, you know, making our own records and. Uh, organising our own shows um, and, you know, organising all the artwork and everything that went with it. Quite, so did, yeah. you, didn't, you didn't feel like you were part of this kind of scene? I mean, everyone, you know, especially the Fickle fan like myself, love to think about kind of putting things in scenes and categories, really, don't we? And, and you've got all these bands from Australia who sort of come over from the hard-ons to the Die Pretty to, um, yeah, the go-betweens. And then obviously you had people like Nick Cave, and lots of and the moodists, the moodists, Dave, Dave Graney, and Claire. I mean, yeah. it's all there. Did you feel yeah. like God, Look, Australia? We are. This is a golden period. No, uh, it's the case where oh, the moodists. We heard their single and thought, oh, there's one band in Australia we don't hate. You know, <laughs> not, not don't hate, but you know, we could relate to. We didn't really feel a part of the whole Radio Birdman uh, Saints, uh, all of the the, the bigger bands. Uh, what we call over east from Perth. We talk about over east, but the Moodists. And when we got to Melbourne and met the Moodists, did a show with them where six people turned up and we became friends. And I'm still good friends with uh, Dave and Claire and, and Steve Miller in particular. Um, so I didn't meet the go betweens. And I think Dave met them once in Australia, but not until we got to the UK. And that's the same with. Nick Cave or Peter Milton Walsh, you know, Peter from the apartments, or um, so we weren't really a scene in Australia, that's for sure. Perth, Perth's a long way away from all of the East Coast scene, and I guess in in London we tended to socialise a bit in the mid '80s, just because we're the only other people we knew there. But we did, and we did a few shows together. Um, but, uh, yeah, we didn't, we're certainly quite different musically, uh, in just about every case. Yeah. There were, there wasn't, um, I think there's, is one of our songs for those, uh, Keen fans will know where Dave makes a direct reference to a go-between style of playing guitar, like there's a particular guitar part in one of our songs that 
does intentionally sound like the go-betweens, but it it was uh, we were all that different. I think that um, that sort of thing was possible. Yes, God, what's the song? No, I, I, that's only the the uh, the real. F- Fans real fan, the only genuine fan, I know. Uh, there's plenty, of, there's a few other references in, in books and things yeah. that have been written lately about Dave. No, Speaking of a... which, there's a do- documentary film being made of Dave that hopefully will come out soon. If it was about to come out till all this virus hit. Yes. But um, well, then... Jonathan Alley, who's a radio broadcaster on community radio in Melbourne, much like yourself, or he's been doing it for a long time. He's got together this film over the last decade and that uh, tells a lot, a lot of good... Well, uh, it tells the story of Dave's life, effectively. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. interesting because, um, yes, it's like the mystery of Carly Simons. You're so vain, isn't it? Who is that person? We'll never know. But look, so 85, you, you also played Glastonbury Festival, which must have felt like quite an interesting experience. Because in the yeah. country, Glastonbury is kind of, I mean, in those days, it was very much a sort of a, like an alternative, hippie, droppy, arty, smoke drugs, fake drugs. Oh, it was still a, a big, big concert. We played at one o'clock on a Sunday or something, but there were still, you know, maybe 10,000 people in and out of the mud pit down the front. Yes. It wasn't the full, you know, evening sort of size crowd, but... And we played, a, I think, a couple of years later in a tent at Glastonbury, which was a bit more, had a bit more focus throughout the show than the, but, uh, yeah, we uh, we played a lot of big shows in Europe in the 80s, you know, 85, 86, 87, because um, certainly some promoters in Europe saw how, I think just you've got strong songs, they can translate to a, a big, sort of stadium without having to overblow the uh, the production in any way, which we, we didn't have a overblown production at any yeah. stage, although we tried, we tried, you know, getting Adam, uh, things like having Adam Peters on, on the cello or, um, yeah, we two things in the studio, but, but live we were pretty... It was pretty simply presented uh, rock music, you know. Yes. So look, the most one of the great albums of the eighties, Born Sandy Devotional. What's your yeah. memories of of that sort of coming together? And especially, I mean, everyone must ask it. Wide yeah. road. This must. This was kind yeah. of because um, I, I mean, I have to confess, I bought it. I think on the same day that I bought, um, it was probably the Smiths. Queen is dead, and I was thinking, God, you know, the eighties was politically a bit rubbish, but musically amazing. Yeah, well, it, it's uh, one of our strongest records for sure. And we were certainly, you'd have to say, peaking, I guess, you know, that was the second time getting back to the UK, knowing that we had, you know, um, a tours to do and studio time booked that. And Dave had, Dave put so much work into. Uh, all his recordings and and um, and the writing of the songs and just the conceiving of the the atmosphere for the record and that um, it was a it was a lot of work but a pleasure to do because uh, it came together with Dave's direction you know Gil Norton we got him through one of the connections through the Bunnymen and and 
also Adam Peters who'd worked with the Bunnymen at that stage to come and it wasn't as if they took over the production. Mm. We all knew Dave had all the ideas. It's just a matter of um, realising his vision and we'd all worked together for so long that we did that pretty well and there was no, you know, uh, no, no problems really recording did you feel? Did you feel? Did you feel at the time this was quite a special record? Did you feel like God, there's something quite magical? I felt that about pretty much all our recordings, but but because of the time and the place, yeah, it, we knew it had to be good. I always thought it would be good, and when we were working, Dave, in the, as I say, had such a clear direction, but with room for. A lot of collaboration as well. He, you know, his notes were he would come in and say, "I want this guitar sound to be like a particular, you know, thing he'd heard." Or, um, and so yeah, you'd work. We worked well together. Um, with with Calinchia and Black Swan, we had more money to spend more. We could spend more time in the studio, so it was done not so independently, <clears throat> and. We probably went down some, uh, we're going to say rabbit holes, went down some, some paths that may not have worked so well. But although I think with the, the Black Swan, the, the production uh, concept is pretty clear. They're, they're all those, just maybe we may have overdone production on Calinture, yeah. can be said, but, but the, all those three records, um, <clears throat> I think, stand up to... Um, just Dave's creativity and songwriting and, and production ideas, you know. They, yeah. Well, it is. I must keep on changing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I sort of, I know this sounds a bit creepy, but it, I thought they were kind of musical perfection, really, those three. I mean, there was something quite amazing about them. And something, I mean, I suppose everyone says the same, but those those second two after Born Sandy Devotional was, um, it was lush, wasn't it? That's kind of like that's, Look, yeah, that's coming from someone who has no technical knowledge. <clears throat> but there was something kind of, kind of quite lush about the whole sound, which was a bit different. Yeah, to a lot well, of indie pop. Yeah, we we had, you know, signed with Ireland. So finally, Dave could say, "Great, we can make this orchestral record. We've always wanted to bring in the strings and the Julian pops." We, you know, it wasn't done um, for for its own sake. All the ideas were grounded in music. It wasn't frivolous no but um for instance we did start with uh, the calenture with uh production with craig leon but that didn't we spent uh days in the studio or dave did at, at the beginning of those sessions and for various reasons we weren't happy with it but we we're able to have the luxury of being signed with ireland he had paid for it, or we're going to pay for it in the long run, but we bit the bullet and said, no, this is not what we want to do. Um, and Dave was very much out there pushing the boundaries of what we wanted to do. Yes. So that was an interesting phase for the group, and it certainly um, stretched our, uh, the, the group bonds and dynamic through the recording, you know, the big... So the first major album, if you like, yeah. Um, because because Dave was so adventurous, and um, 
the things didn't work out with Gil, uh, with uh, Le Craig Leon, so we end up going back to Craig uh, to to um, Gil Norton, who did Born Sandy, and I would suggest because you know, we knew what we're getting with Gil and and Dave, Dave could basically have his way. Yes, <laughs> um, but I'm sure Gil Gil would probably disagree that he he you know. But he was, uh, there was also, their records. Um, I can't remember who the other go-to producer was at that time. Somebody, John, Klein, John. A lot of um, Australian bands seem to have. That's not a good point to say mention. But look, could you just mention yeah. it? Okay, just uh, just talk me through the the the, the recording of um, Wide Open Road because obviously that's a bit of a. It's one of those JFK moments, isn't it? When you listen to the John Peel show and he puts on as Triffid's Wide Open Road, you think, oh my God, this is incredible. You know, there was something a bit yeah. like How Soon Is Now from the Smiths or... Yeah, it was um, pretty um, pretty strongly realised song before. Uh, it wasn't one that was sort of worked up in rehearsals like Dave came to us saying, I want this one to have a drum machine. And I, I know the ref, the cultural reference on this one. He says I want it to be sounding like Suicide Drum Machine. If you know the Martin yeah. Rev, the Alan Vega combo, Suicide, not <laughs> something <laughs> else. Um, you, you don't know who's listening these days, do you? No. no um, uh, so he came in with that, and he wanted M Marty. Uh, I think came up with the baseline as it is. But Dave said the structure of the song is this, which is a very unusual structure to begin with. And the things like he said to me, just you play this one little loopy guitar bit that goes round and round and round. Um, might be a clue there, David. Then um, and Jill, you know, worked worked up these keyboard lines that he knew what it. You know, there's a sort of ethereal high. Um, resonant keyboard sounds that he knew he wanted. So it was um, quite sort of a, a technical thing, just programming the drum machine so that it had the right things. So of course, Alzi then overdubbed the snare, cracks sort of to, to build the syncopation into it. But they're all, um, it wasn't, yeah, it, it, it was it was just us doing what we do, I guess. We worked well as a band to, to realise Dave's songs. You know, he would, and that one I think he had a pretty clear idea of what he wanted. Yeah. There'd be other songs where I'd say something like Jerda Cut Up Man, I think, you know, it was much more started to evolve uh, inputs or or say on um, um stolen property. Yeah, um, all, but Dave, Dave would have come with just okay. It's these two chords and sung the song, and all of the instrumentation pretty much would have been worked up by the band. The whole Marty throbbing bass bit and and Alzi's big drum parts and and the keyboard lines. Yeah, so that that was probably different than than what Open Road. Um, because chicken Dave was. So gifted that you could just go with what he suggests, or but he was also uh, thrived on collaboration. So if you had, he would he would work to include suggestions if they worked, but he was also ruthless in disregarding anything that uh, 
clearly he disagreed with. Yes. Or he thought was bad text. Oh, that phone keeps on dropping, sorry. That's fine. This... Chicken, and Chicken Killer was the one that, from memory, God, is the one that just starts straight with the vocal, doesn't it? Which is quite an unusual kind of like, oh, no one's ever done that. Well, they probably have, but I can't. Uh, well, the whole record of Born Sandy starts with uh, a vocal, which is seabirds, you know, foreign pair of dark sunglasses will ever shield you from the light that pierces your eyelids and the screaming of the gulls, which is a good opening line. But that, you're right, uh, I knelt, I aimed, I missed, I ran, is the, also a, a vocal line that uh, starts Chicken Killer by itself. Yes. Um, yeah, the, these are all intentional. It's not... Yes, yeah. well, absolutely. But quite kind yeah. of, um, I suppose, quite not radical, but not many people have done that before to started with such a like, oh, you normally have a bit of a warm up, but not just the vocal coming straight in and you think, all right, okay, this is, yeah. it gives yeah. it quite a, it gives it, it quite a punch and an, uh, kind of immediacy yeah. and urgency. It's probably is. somebody like Johnny Cash might have, somebody like that, you know, yeah. just straight, uh, you know, country singer, songwriter style, just here's the song, it start, goes like this. Um, so it's interesting you pick up on that one because with you may know done a, a record of Dave's songs that uh, were just on cassette tapes, just demos that never saw the light of day that he wrote in the 80s, the 90s, a few years before his death, called Truckload of Sky. Are you aware of that record? No. No. Uh, check it out on... Uh, We've managed to put it out on Bandcamp and we've distributed it here in Australia. Uh, they said they'd had a, a Europe connection. So um, we got them the vinyl pressed in Czechoslovakia and it's come all the way back to Australia to go back to the UK. But you can uh, certainly on Bandcamp, if you look down, it's by the Friends of David McComb, which is the name of the combo mm. they put together. So Graham Lee and I have been talking about doing this about five years ago, we started talking about it because we both had these cassette tapes of Dave's that he'd, um, he'd just been writing songs and, and making a record of them. There's a couple of them that he'd done with his band co-star, which he had for the last few years of the 90s. And they'd been once performed live or a couple of recordings at home, but for the bulk of the recordings, we just, took a sort of a skeleton demo recording of Dave's made in you know, in his lounge room with the background noise on and decided to, we decided to do proper recordings, get Phil Kakoulis in who knows Dave's writing well and, and other musicians Dave has worked with. And so we, since we started rehearsing some of the songs, we knew it would be you know, worthwhile activity and we've made a record that we're really happy with. And the first song on side one starts with a vocal straight in before the music, in the same way that Seabirds does on, on Born Sandy. And it and lyrically, it almost takes off from the same space, but even a more darker territory, as you'd imagine from somebody who's been through a heart transplant and a lot of uh, a lot of water under the bridge since the the pop of the 80s um, or, the, or the 
Yeah. Yes. So look out for that record. I uh, um, friends of the have, yes, have it in front of me. In fact, there you go. There's a, a photo of the, the CD. Truckload of sky. Truckload of sky. I will. I'll read truckload of sky. Photo. Um, not doing very good justice of it. But my father took a Dave on a beach in England somewhere. I think. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so we used, um, you know, the Triffids had done, if you like, tribute shows. We came and played in the Barbican in 2008 or nine, I think. Um, and it was we never wanted to play without Dave, but these people in Belgium in 2006 asked us to come and play there, but we couldn't, we didn't think it was going to be possible. And they said, no, just, just we're, we're putting on a, uh, this is um, some people in a town called Hasselt in Belgium, and they they were putting on an art exhibition of all our videos and posters and records and sort of a setting up a Triffids Museum, if you like. So they convinced us to go and, and have a go. We went and played there without Dave, and it was very kind of spooky because we, we hadn't intended for that to happen. Uh, we got an old friend, Mark Snarski, to come up from Spain to join us. And after that, uh, we did a series of shows in 2008 and 10 and 11 in, in Sydney Festival and Perth Festival. And as they came back to uh, London, we played uh, just in 2000, when are we, 15, was it? We played, or 2016, we played in Islington Town Hall. Uh, in London and Belgium. So we've been doing these, they're, they're like tribute shows to Dave where we get other a group of other singers yes. to sing his songs rather than replace him with one person. I think that's... Um, yeah. yeah, they've been good shows. Penny, you missed that one, David. I know. God, I'm... I'm, I'm look, just but, one thing. But, cause, I was just going to say, because and I might, you know, you might be saying that you've completely got that wrong, but read, remember in the NME days... Did the Triffids ever do one of those concerts where it was more like showing films and having a bit of a chat and playing some music? Was that was that something that you did, or have I just kind of made yeah. that? Yeah, no, we we would have we played the Shaw Theatre four nights in a row, and at that stage, yeah, we'd taken to showing films while we're playing, you know, but things like of us recording in the woolshed and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I'm not, uh, not sure about the Q and A so much. That that certainly happened when we did these tribute shows in the in, right. in the last decade or so. Um, but we liked, or Dave in particular, liked to have sort of subvert the rock and roll cliches and. Um, if, if there was a chance to be having a conversation with the audience, he certainly would engage somebody. Yes, because um, the other thing, you know, when I was saying at the beginning that, you know, like the that kind of glorious indie pop period of the 80s, I mean, it was yeah. like, I always put it between 83 to 87, which obviously is not completely right. But, you know, that was the years of the Smiths. And then Ecstasy came along and then suddenly, you know, a lot of bands who had been in, in the scene had sort of had enough, you know, especially, you know, yeah. by the second or third album, 
you know, in, in the UK, if anybody ever tours America, they always think, oh, we came back and we split up because America just destroyed us. And, and, and the fan is kind of quite fickle and they start to move on as well. And then, you know, the music press suddenly go, oh, look, the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Primal Screens. Yeah, dance music, yeah. Dance with ecstasy and all that kind of stuff. And then you have, yeah. the, you know, the Seattle. Were you also kind of aware of that kind of musical shift as well as a band? Were yeah, you, yeah. Well, looking back on it, it seems much clearer for, for me. At the time, at the 1989, Dave said, oh, we need to take a break. I need to do something different than this touring and this music business stuff, which we were all very happy to do. And he went back to Australia and he pretty quickly decided, no, I want to do solo record, he'd probably been planning it, Went, came back to the UK in 1990 and searched to try, I think he still had a deal with Ireland, but that didn't come through or didn't, they didn't support him. And his, he spent the next two or three years making a solo record with um, a lot of support from Adam Peters and, and people like Marty and Graham back in Australia. But, yeah, the, the, it seemed like all the dance music uh, really didn't suit um, the sort of music he was making for Love of Will, his solo record, which was um, really, um, my, my, yeah, not not dance music, more more soul music. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, well, I guess, and, you know, I think it kind of caught a lot of people, yeah. not caught them out, but it was definitely something yeah. that, was quite difficult to sort of work yeah, out. Yeah, it's hard hard to be in, in time with the times, I guess. And Dave always thought it was terrible to be fashionable. The last thing we'd want to be is fashionable. Yeah. But we somehow, I think it was that sort of anti-fashionable stance that became sort of fashionable around the time you said. Because um, your, last, so, your last solo album, not solo album, your last studio album was with Stephen Street. Um, yeah. Who was kind of became a legendary producer who's seen yeah. he's extraordinary. He's, he's gone on. Yeah. But at the time he'd done this sort of a Smith's album and he'd worked with Morrissey on some of those early yeah. solo albums. Yeah. So and that yeah. was also recorded down in Somerset as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And was, and was that a good experience? Yeah, it was great. I mean, Stephen was great to work with. Again, because he saw Dave's he respected Dave's uh, creativity. And there was nothing about Stephen saying, uh, you know, overriding any of Dave's uh, uh, ideas. Um, so much so that, yeah, the Black Swan has, again, sort of opera singing and Latin American influence and and rap, sort of lover's rap style and all these things I'm sure Stephen wouldn't have been suggesting. Yes. <laughs> but I know Dave was going, I want it to sound like, you know, LL Cool J or something, you know. We love, uh, we love LL. The early well, LL Cool it, on the radio. The, uh, well, Dave saw the, you know, he was hearing, enjoying the Beastie Boys and, and Schooly D and all of, all of the, the rap pioneers. But, and because, no coincidence with his focus on the song as an art form and lyrics particularly, you know, that yes. these poets, the poetic, side of the of the medium is what drove him and uh, and drives it, it gives our songs that so much um, so much meaning and integrity i think and 
Because a few years earlier, he had an accident, didn't he, which kind of probably had a massive influence on the rest of his life, his back, you know, his accident, which hit his back. Uh, yeah, How he's never think? been that well. And yeah, when I remember when we were filming for Bury Me Deep in Love film clip, he, he could hardly walk. He was getting around on a walking stick. Um, yeah, and ha had a bad heart too, ended up having to have a transplant. Oh, there we go. Yeah. How did he, so, uh, just, just, just roughly, how, what did he do with his back? How did he damage his back? Oh, I don't know. I think just too many hours spent curled up in, he's a big guy, six foot two or something, curled up in a tour bus, didn't help, you know? Right. And, and, and in the early days, when I say the early days, sort of for three years working in Sydney, we were supporting bands where, Part of the deal was you had to carry this massive PA into the venue. You had to be a roadie as well as a support band. So um, the lifestyle doesn't help the body. No. <laughs> you know, uh, and he wasn't that sort of um, sporty anyway. So I think uh, just you know, cul cul you know, culminates in breaking down. But yeah. Tough number. It's yeah, I know. It's not good, is it? That's kind of yeah. So when when the band when the, you decided to to stop the band, was that a conversation that everybody kind of had, or was it just a kind of a feeling? Thing? It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't deciding to stop the band as so much as Dave said, "I need a break," and um, we all did, and so it was decided to take six months off, which. As soon as we were in six months off mode, the rest of the band found other things to do, like um, most of us decided, well, better find some other way of earning money. And not all of us, yeah, only, only Martin Casey stayed in music, or Graham Lee stayed in music. Me and Jill and Alzi went off and did courses in law and architecture and these sort of things. So... Um, so within six months, it was quite clear that David still not got anywhere in making his solo record. And we thought, okay, we might get together in a year or two. That that might happen, but let's just get on with another aspect of our lives in the in the meantime. Yes. And in '95, Dave was talking seriously about um, you know doing at least a farewell tour. We'd never done that. We never actually, you know cashed in on 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 the breaking up which is what became the sort of the music industry standard and then you, and then you reform and break up and do that so <laughs> we were going to do that and that was that was the year when Dave got really sick with his heart and once he was in hospital um, we knew no that's not going to happen so yeah it didn't happen yeah so the, the, the shows that we've done, in the last 10 years or so, uh, which are, we, we pick, uh, I think we call the, call the Triffids and Friends shows, um, have been very, uh, very sentimental occasions. Yes. Did it take that sort of distance of time, the passing of time, to sort of go back, come back to the music and sort of look at it again? I just wondered, because it sounds like it was so kind of, painful especially you know yeah, I, I didn't didn't want to uh really hear 
his voice for, for a few years after he died in, in terms of song and all that. I was busy teaching in the high school. I had, you know, bringing up young kids. Uh, so for a decade or so, I, I didn't really have anything to do with that. And I think it's pretty much the same for Jill and Alzi over in Perth. I was in Melbourne. Uh, Marty, he got a job with Nick Cave pretty soon after that. Uh, and Graham plays with various people in Melbourne and works in a guitar shop or has done. But, uh, yeah, so it wasn't... Um, Yeah, it wasn't. We didn't officially ever break up. <laughs> no, but I suppose sometimes it's yeah, kind of. Yeah, but no, we intense. never wanted to play without yeah, Dave. Yeah, and the intensity of those periods is quite something because I sort of realised as well that the passing of time, and it's normally around 25, this isn't 100% waterproof, but I've noticed about 25 to 30 years is a sort of a passing of time where often people then can look back at what they did when they were younger and, and not yeah. cringe or feel quite so like either sort of annoyed, angry, or just emotionally like difficult. Yeah. With it. Because I don't know if you yeah. realize this as well, but suddenly, um, you know, there's the legacy of the band and people going back and actually this was really good. And there's kind of films on, you know, like the wedding present during George Best album. There was the chills, the go betweens, the slip. Yeah. You know, all these yeah, people. The, the 20 suddenly... years later, I've noticed this pattern and a sort of a, a generational thing too, uh, I think, with with art generally. You know, you, the way clothes fashions come around in 20 or 25-year cycles as well. Yes, that's true. The mullet. No, not quite. Yeah, um. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, this is just a COVID uh, lockdown uh, well, I managed to get to the, I got I got to the hairdresser straight away when they, we could when they opened but yeah so did you did you suddenly have that kind of because obviously when you got asked to do various things probably the initials like no and then it's like well possibly and then it's like okay we seem to be doing this and did that also no, we weren't, yeah we weren't asked until, until 2006 it was never sort of on the cards never even talked about we sort of had to be convinced that, no, it would be a good idea to get together and play with that, Dave. And yeah. as soon as we did it, we realised it's the best way to remember him because then the fans can also remember him. And it's pretty a bit spooky in that when we get back together and it's just the band sort of in a band room somewhere and the conversations tend to be similar to what you had 20, 30 years ago. Yes. And so in in that sense, you're expecting Dave's, you know, caustic wit to cut in at some stage and and cut through the bullshit and, and say it like it is, like he used to, or, or make some hilarious joke. He, he was always, well, I found him a ple pleasant person to hang around most times. Well, yes, absolutely. Even, and even though he, he was a bit grumpy, I guess. But, I um, know. He had a lot of these artists, you know, they, they're allowed to be grumpy, aren't they? Well, look at Morrissey. Just... Oh, I can't these days. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like... politically incorrect, isn't it? I, I can't keep up these days. But what, what I'm allowed to look at and what I'm not. I don't know. It's not, it's not so much about being politically correct, incorrect or whatever. It's more just like, that's just a bit strange, really. But it is the whole. The whole cancel culture we're going to talk about. 
oh my god no let's not go there what yeah anyway you know i mean but did you um i mean if you could then say something to an 18 year old self your 18 year old self i mean what would you just kind of whisper in their ear as they were about to either go on stage or go into the studio as they were that honeymoon you know the honeymoon period where you're playing in small clubs in norwich <laughs> and thinking god yeah that lasted about seven years for us i think the honeymoon for me anyway pretty much all the 80s you know um well no i i think uh sort of do your homework a bit more i, I was lucky enough to have a very talented brother yes and uh but then, yeah. So I don't, I don't have to, too many times when I have like regrets because, or, or um, what I what I should have done was this, um, because uh, yeah, uh, that I'll have to. That that's a, that's one of those classic questions. What would you say to your eighteen year old self? But. Um, Pretty not not too. As far as far as the music and the art go, not not too much difference. Just uh, yeah, yeah. Because we really, as I said before, it's sort of like a a request or an adventure to go on, to choose that path of the you know like a minstrel, and that that was uh, a good thing to do. Well, I have to say. I don't have to say it, but I will. Um, I mean, it was, I mean, a bit like the Smiths, you created an amazing body of work and it was very neat in a way, wasn't it? You went like, this is what we've done. And the legacy is pretty amazing, you know, and-, and Well, I don't know if you're aware of, before I joined the band, they'd done, the Triffids had made three cassette C86s or three C90s as we, I remember, of, you know, uh, songs, all great, in their own way. And then we made another three of those before we even did our first single, which was run, which was one, the, the studio time won through a competition on a, on a, uh, on a student radio station. Um, so, and I remember Dave saying at the time off, we were, you know, in, you know, on postcard label in Scotland or something, you know, our first three albums would have already been out, you know, they would yeah. have been those those tapes, and sometimes I wonder, you know, there's we could have been much bigger than we were if that was the case, because a lot on those early tapes there's some really uh, creative songs, anyway, some quite unusual songs as well. But, but I noticed on Spotify you've got a lot of yeah. recordings up there now, haven't you? You haven't got, you know, you've just got phenomenal. Well. Uh, Domino, we were on Domino for a while and they gladly put out a, a 10 CD box set which Graham Lee compiled and many, almost all of the first six tapes, as I say, which were just home recordings onto, onto a two-track uh, TAC. There was a good recorder, but simply recorded. Uh, this is before the first single, before the first EPs, you know, before uh, we... Did, did anything sort of more professionally. Um, most of those are now, because they are put on those CDs, are available, you know, you can find them on Spotify if you search for yes. know, the, right, the right category. So um, 
a couple of those songs we've also redone on this record, Truckload of Sky, from the early tapes, for instance. Truckload of, yeah. Truckload of Sky. I will check that out. But look, it's... The Lost Songs of David McComb, yeah. Well, I know. And, um, and it's great. And obviously, it sounds like you've archived all your history of the band as well, and the live dates and shows and now yeah. the recordings as well. And then a film coming out, hopefully. Well, and uh, books have been written, one by Bledon Butcher, who was a photographer for the enemy for many years. He's written a book um, called Save What You Can, that he published himself because he couldn't find a publisher in the end. And that's really one for the fans. That goes into great detail about every song pretty much written. There's another uh, book, uh, um, these are all named after song titles, of course, but by um, a group of writers, but ed edited by Niall Lucy, and it's out on Fremantle Press. It's called uh, Vagabond Holes. Yeah. It's a, great, it's a great book if you want to read about Dave because it's about 30 different authors writing all in different forms, you know, including some of the band, little anecdotes of life on the road or of Dave but mostly people writing about or with Dave. And so you get a real sense of his, him as an artist from a whole lot of different perspectives of his peers anyway. So they're good books. And there's another book of his poetry being published called Beautiful Waste, also put out by Fremantle Arts Centre Press. So uh, for all of the, you know, they'll, they'll all be available online for people to order if they want to yes. look at those books. Well, the thing, it's great. I mean, just lastly, I mean, it's great that, you know, this this is getting archived as well as kind of, um, yes, released so that the legacy, as you say, yeah. will continue. Because actually, I think that's the one thing that I've been amazed with doing this show has been just the, the quality of material. Because I think I've been looking at it slightly, you know, in a sweeping sort of statement. But, you know, you, you get into sort of a sort of musical scene, then life happens and you things and then sometimes you you go back and listen and think oh is this going to be terrible and you think actually it's much better than i remember and there's also all the other bands and albums that i didn't hear the first time that i've started to listen to as well and been you know quite amazed by so i think we were quite blessed in the 80s without it also like rose tinted sunglasses mm, yeah it's, it's it's hard when you get well to our age or or even older than you dave my age um that that phenomenon, yeah, the, the generational thing, like we always think the music of our youth or our, our, in our younger days is the best music there was in terms of songs or styles. But, yeah, there, there's somewhere out there there's people doing good music. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> so, Don't forget, actually, um, in the yeah. 80s, my, my boss at the time was one of those people in this from the 60s generation who had seen although you know he'd seen the Beatles and Hendrix and Eric Clapton and the yeah Hill. so he you know the 80s for him you know listen to the Smiths was like oh this is dreadful you know so yeah. he, didn't, he didn't get the 80s and a lot I think a lot of people go oh I, you know I, I remember a lot of people go oh it was a shame we missed punk and it's like well okay but now we've got the 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 indie world and these are really great bands oh no they're rubbish they're not like the Sex Pistols and the Clash so I think there yeah. are always people who think 
oh, I should have been born in San Francisco in 1967, that would have been brilliant, or 90, or New York and been hang, hang, hanging out with Andy Warhol. But I think they're also the same people that if they had been born then, they would be, oh, I wish I'd been born earlier and been hanging out with Elvis Presley. So I think some people just go, oh, this is great and get into it, and other people just always make an excuse. That's my theory. Yeah, well, there's, there's different, different eras of music in different places, and yeah, it's uh, certainly a wonderful world, and I'm enjoying continuing to uh, yes, and to thank discover. you. Look, this has been great because literally, I've been yeah. I've been dropping the odd message to to the Triffids, whatever, and uh, and thinking, no, yeah. this isn't just. And then one day, you kind of went, yes, and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing! I can't believe. It. Yeah, well, um, I'm not that great on social media, but I managed to do this. I know. Well, look at us, old people on Zoom. Check it out. Yeah. Well, uh, and uh, yeah, if our listeners want to check out um, triffids.com, I think I think that'll be it. It's um, the website that Graham set up. It's got lots of interesting um, documents there, apart from all the lyrics to all the songs and and the gigography. But um, yeah. Yes. This has been brilliant. Well, thank you. And I will make sure that I'll announce that. And when I put it out, I'll also send it to your whatever. And then hopefully they'll be able to use yeah. it. Elsewhere. But that's been Yeah, we've, we've got contact. So David, and check out Truckload of Sky. I know, that's it definitely, is. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And uh, yes, well, thank you, Robert. Okay. Thanks, brilliant. David. I'll, I'll, I'll hit see you, you again. Take care. Bye-bye. Yes. Yes. Bye. Bye. I know, I love that ending because we always get slightly embarrassed and uh, apologetic, but that's just me. Anyway, that's a huge thank you to the Triffids member, Robert McComb, who gave me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show and you'll find, um, yes, you'll be able to contact me. I don't know why you'd want to do, to do that, but um, you might do. Who knows? <laughs> and who cares? Anyway, keep it positive, obviously, frankly. And um, also, all these shows have been archived, and you can find those on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. Do, you know, again, C86 show. It's all good. Anyway, this is me saying goodbye. Have a great week. 